Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello all, I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I want to welcome you here for a discussion that myself and Platinum Performance have really been looking forward to bringing you. Um, and that is part one in our two-part series focusing on the equine cervical spine. And to do that, we have some of the best in the business joining me to dig into this topic. So today in part one, we're going to be homing in on diagnostics and the intricacies of the physical exam, all focused on the cervical spine. So later in part two, which you can catch in a second installment, uh, we'll be diving into treatments for common disorders of the cervical spine and also the key role that rehabilitation plays in bringing these horses back. So to tackle diagnostics and the physical exam, let me introduce you uh, to some of the superstar equine veterinarians who are making an impact daily uh, in their work with these cases. First up, Dr. Mindy Story. She is one of the primary drivers and founding members behind uh, really the newly minted Equine Spine Initiative Group. Um, and she's an infinite source of knowledge. And to anyone who knows her or knows of her, uh, she's a passionate advocate for the horse. Uh, Dr. Story is board certified in both equine surgery and sports medicine and rehabilitation, as well as being certified in equine chiropractic and acupuncture. And she's a lifelong horsewoman herself, in addition to being an incredibly intuitive and talented veterinarian at the revered Colorado State University. Um, and she'll be the only constant figure that we have in both part one and part two of this series. She's my co-host, if you will. Uh, hello, Dr. Story. Thank you for joining us, my friends. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. And next up, meet Dr. Will French. Dr. French comes to us from the famed Littleton Equine Medical Center in Colorado, where he has his hands on horses on the daily and is seeing diagnosing and treating these cases in real time. And like Dr. Story, Dr. French is also certified in equine chiropractic and acupuncture. Um, he's just a great guy and an incredible veterinarian. And uh, it looks like we're stacking the deck with the Coloradoans today. So that was the, that was just by chance, but welcome you guys. You're about what, an hour and a half from each other, hour from each other. Welcome yep. Dr. French. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Well, amazing. Well, I'm happy to have you both here with me to discuss really a topic that is not only important, but I feel like it's been on the rise in recent decades. The cervical spine has obviously always been there in the horse, but um, I think the understanding and really the appreciation for the cervical spine diagnostics, the issues surrounding the spine have really kind of come to fruition. Um, so it's my pleasure to have you here today. And I mean that. Um, so not only do we get to talk diagnostics and the cervical spine, but we get to do it amongst friends and that's always the best part. So let's kick it off and go right into our topic, why we're here. Um, and that's the cervical spine. So Dr. Story, I'm looking at you. Um, can you set the stage for us? We have a lot of equine veterinarians joining us, um, but we also have quite a few trainers and writers. So give us a refresher, if you will. Um, what specific portion of the anatomy are we discussing when we say the cervical spine? Um, I, I think it's really important to just keep in mind that there are so many structures when we talk about the cervical spine or the neck. Um, the, the quick answer is essentially from their ears to their withers and to the point of their shoulder. Um, but I think sometimes it's easy to get honed in on maybe one particular part. Um, the joints are one of the areas that a lot of people think of off the bat, but it's really, really important to remember the muscles, the discs, the joint capsules, um, all of the supporting soft, soft tissues, the nerves, everything is so critical to making 
the cervical region um, function properly. And so when we say spine, you know, that may indicate more about the bony column, um, but there's so much more than just the bony column. So the entire cervical region um, needs to be on our minds. Um, and that will certainly come out in the rest of the discussion when we're talking about diagnostics. We can't just look at one structure because uh, we will likely be taken down a rabbit hole that may or may not be actually important if we forget that there's all the other structures or all of the other parts of the neck, right? Um, the, the cranial cervical region up in the pole area can have a whole different list of problems and complications that we need to focus on versus the lower neck and down into the cranial thoracic. Um, so it's it's um, just very important to remember the all-encompassing when we talk about the neck of a horse. And it's so critical to everything that people do, whether you're a barrel racer, a dressage uh, rider or trainer, when we look at these horses, the neck is, is critical um, to be able to help them function in a comfortable and happy way. And um, I do think it's really important for all of us to remember that in order for that horse to do its job, we want them to do it happily and comfortably and to the best of their ability. Um, and the, the nervous system and all of those supporting structures have to be a part of that in order to make that possible. Well said per usual. So I'm officially changing my nomenclature from cervical spine to cervical region. Um, so thank you. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We all call it the spine. Um, but, but, but as the preface to the, to the day, I think it's important to remember there's so many structures involved. hundred so. percent. It's such a great point, um, you know, how complicated the neck is, right? And Dr. Story listed all of those structures and that's what makes the neck really cool and really frustrating um, because the reason that a horse might be stiff in bending their neck can be because of any of those, any one of those things or all of those things together. And so trying to sort that out can be a real diagnostic challenge. Um, but also uh, gives us real appreciation for the athletes that these horses are and what they do. So um, it's definitely a little bit of a puzzle sometimes, and we have to remember more of what's going on than what we see on the screen in front of us, uh, but makes this, this region, I think, pretty, pretty cool. Absolutely. You're equine veterinarians. You're masters at puzzles, right? That's what you do. Um, we hope. So you, we hope, we right? You, you, you try, you do succeed most of the time. Um, you know, as we're talking about this, I mentioned in the beginning that I feel like, you know, tell me if you would agree that over the last decade, two decades, that the neck and back have come much more to the forefront of, of equine veterinary medicine. Why is that? Is that just our focus shifted there? Our understanding increased, our diagnostics got better, um, the advent of the ACVSMR specialty. Why have the neck and back come into the limelight and gotten the attention that they deserve, really? It, Go ahead, uh, Dr. I'll, I'll share a thought and then story can, Dr. Story can jump in. It's probably a little bit of all of the above, right? So it's a, it's an increased understanding of um, what actually is contained in these regions from a better understanding of anatomy, and then certainly better diagnostics to look at those areas more fully. Uh, that's a huge one. Uh, and then the ability to understand what we are actually looking at on the screen again. Um, it has to do with, um, I think, owners and riders uh, raising the bar for us. Um, and, you know, asking more of us as clinicians beyond just the horse is limping and it's from the foot. It's like, no, there's the horse is telling us that something else is going on. So, you know, the ability to try and find that and listen to the horse, I think is really important. And so many, some of those cases tend to be coming from the neck, from the back, things like that. And so, you know, a lot of that is uh, us paying attention to the horse and, and their people. Um, and it really is an exciting time. I mean, I think about I, I didn't learn very much about the neck and back in school, a little bit, um, but not a ton. Um, I didn't graduate all that long ago in 2011. Um, and then I did my internship at Littleton under Dr. Story and she kind of 
opened my mind to some of those things. And I just remember then attending my chiropractic certification and further eye cell modules and my eyes were really open to, oh my gosh, there is so much going on here that I had no idea about. Um, so it really is just an increased awareness of what's been there the whole time. Absolutely. How about you, Dr. Story? Yeah, I really agree with Dr. French. Um, I think all of the factors that you listed off are, are really critically important. Um, the, the, yeah, the riders and trainers are asking more of the athlete. Um, we have the ability to look better than we used to. I mean, when we were limited to radiographs um, and even those machines couldn't power through a neck or a back, certainly not of a big muscled horse. So the technology has improved. Our understanding has improved. The needs have grown. And luckily, all of those things are, are kind of coming together to support each other. Uh, it's not unlike human athletes, right? Um, the bar has increased for those athletes as well. And, and our understanding of how to support a human athlete or a canine athlete. So, so we just have to be on the forefront of that um, to push that envelope so that as we ask more of them, we can support them to the highest ability. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all of those factors, I think. There's not one that plays a bigger role, but it's really important for everybody to remember that's where we're at because sometimes I do think it's still out there in our industry that if the horse isn't overtly showing lameness, they are fine. And I do think it's critically important. Uh, Dr. French said this, that we have to listen to them and watch them and see what they're telling us because limping is one part of that puzzle, but it's very much not all of that puzzle. And um so we just have to be able to understand what they're telling us in a better way and being open to that. So for trainers, riders, veterinarians, all of us, we all have something to learn every day from the horse. And um, we have to let them be creative in how they tell us that. And, and, and don't stop looking until we sort it out so that they can be happy and perform at their best. Absolutely. And thank you for teeing up the observation discussion, because Dr. French, I want to turn this to you. So when you're seeing cases at Littleton, what are some of the indicators that are moving you to kind of further explore the cervical region? Um, behaviors or symptomology? Um, what, what are these arrows that are pointing toward a possible issue in this area that needs to be explored further? So kind of like the anatomical structures that we mentioned already, you know, in that there's a long list and it's complicated. Um, for me, those things in terms of the exam of a horse, if the neck is involved, it's a long list of things and it's complicated. Um, and so, you know, a horse who has dysfunction in their cervical spine might have one or two of these things on the list. Um, and it might have a lot of things on the list. Um, both can be equally relevant, but um, I think to, you know, when I talk to, to interns or other people, I say, look, here's kind of my list of things that could be cervical spine, and there are probably more. And if we increase the number of things on that list, that might increase my degree of suspicion but just because it only you know checks one box on the list doesn't mean that this horse's neck isn't the problem. So um, you know, for me, um, the we can talk a lot about the exam, but uh, I think the place to start is just a visual exam before you even put your hands on the horse, before you you know ask the horse to move their neck, is to take time and start by looking around the horse. Um, particularly related to the neck, um, a couple things pop out for me. And the first one is what is their musculature? Um, are they uh, underdeveloped? Do they have atrophy? Is it symmetric from side to side? Uh, maybe the um, ventral musculature is overdeveloped. So they've been kind of carrying themselves in an inverted frame for a while. The other thing that you can see sometimes is uh, deformation at the pole, um, around the pole, around the nuchal ligament, or maybe even the nuchal bursa. So sometimes that can clue you in if you just take a minute to look, again, before you even uh, put your hands on the horse. 
So again, just to take a minute and look at the horse, I think is, is a crucial place to start. Dr. Story, do you have more to add on that one? No, I, I just think you're, you're right on. Um, I think sometimes everybody's in, you know, very busy practice and we hit the ground running. Uh, if we're in a hospital setting, the horse unloads and they're, they're brought up to us in a parking lot. And in my opinion, we've already missed some of that really critical information. So my preference is to see them at their barn, maybe in their paddock or in their stall, because they will tell you things right off the bat, even there. So, so just reiterating what you said, Will, that we have to just stop and look at them for a few minutes. And I'm just like you, I talk to the residents and the students a lot, like don't touch it, you know, just slow down for a minute, give it some time to tell us what it needs to tell us while it's just standing there. Are they engaged? Are they interactive? Do they have a little tremor to one front limb? Do they shift weight? Is one leg out in front of the other? Do they not turn their head to look at you through their neck? They just look at you with their eyeballs. Um, there's so they many. They stand with their legs crossed. <laughs> well, that's a bad thing. <laughs> that's always a, a big one right there. <laughs> so yeah, so just so many things. Uh, along the ideas of the muscle atrophy, I really like to think about also not just side to side symmetry, but front to back, you know? So sometimes we have these big, massively muscled horses from their shoulders to their tail. And then you look at their neck and there's like nothing there. And you wonder like, well, that's weird. That's not how a horse is meant to be. They should have symmetric muscling everywhere versus maybe a horse with more of a muscle disease problem where perhaps they'll be poorly muscled everywhere. But when you, when you just see that, asymmetry, whether it's side to side or front to back, um, muscle atrophy or underdevelopment of the neck is one of the best clinical signs to indicate cervical disease and dysfunction. Um, above radiographs, above all of the other things, actually, the muscle um, function and size, if you will, is one of our best ones. So really honing in on that, I think is helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we really talked to me and correct me if I'm wrong here, there, there's kind of a three-pronged approach, right? The visual exam, the physical exam, and then all the tools, the technology, the imaging that you have in your tool chest as a veterinarian. So we've talked about the visual exam. So Dr. Story, I'll point this again toward you, the all important physical exam. So, you know, anybody who's ever watched you work or heard you lecture knows that you're very passionate that the veterinarian's eyes and hands are their best tools above all else. So let's start there. Walk me through your physical exam. What are you looking for? What are you palpating? Um, and how do you kind of tell if the neck is the problem or if the horse is just muscle sore or if there's a neurology issue going on or if there's some pathology at play in the cervical region? Uh, I think first and foremost, recognizing that it takes all of our parts to try to have, um, to hone in that maybe it's the neck. And even then many times I, I'm wrong <laughs> and, and that's okay. Right. We just have to keep looking and keep trying because it, it can get a little overwhelming some days, like, oh my gosh, it's so hard. And the horse is telling me all these conflicting things uh, so being patient with ourselves as veterinarians or being patient with ourselves as riders and trainers, I do think is really important. Uh, but yes, you're right, Jesse. I, I feel very strongly that we go through veterinary school and we pay a whole lot of money for our eyes and our hands um, above all else, right? I mean, the MRIs and the CTs and the ultrasounds and all of the things are super helpful but without our eyes and our hands, nothing else actually matters. And so, and our ears actually, right? We have to really listen to the owners. So we listen to the owner's words and we listen to the horse through our hands and our eyes. Um, and those are, those are critical skills to hone in on. So when I am starting to look at a horse after I've stood back and watched them, like Dr. French said, and after I've talked to the owner at length about a, a really good history, then it's time to get my hands on the horse. And um, I like to just 
truly use my hands. You know, some people will use various tools to, to evaluate a horse's body and that's fair. But how I put it in my mind is I need that horse's nervous system to talk to my nervous system. And the best way to do that is through my fingers. And so we just have to really train our hands, just like we train ourselves to do anything, train our hands to, to feel the tissue. How does the skin move in relationship to the muscle? You know, what is that fascia? Um, sometimes you'll put your hands on a horse and they, they literally feel like a rock with cellophane around it. That's bad. <laughs> they should not feel like that, right? The skin should be soft and pliable and movable across the muscles and the muscle should have soft tone. Um, they shouldn't be reactive if you put your hands on them and they, sh they shy away. I mean, a lot of owners will say, oh, my horse is just head shy. And first I think, well, why, why are they head shy? And yes, I understand sometimes things happen to horses and, and that's fair, but they might be head shy because they're protecting themselves and we have to be able to sort that out. And so um, if that happens, then I'll try to find another part of their body where I can get my hands on them, pet them, rub them, maybe, uh, if you will, go past that first layer into the muscle so that they know that we're, we're not going to hurt them. Um, and then maybe go back to the area that was reactive or overly responsive. And so, yeah, I'm looking for skin, texture and tone, fascia associated with that, obviously, muscle, uh, their reactivity, they, they might enjoy it, their eye might get soft, that's a good sign you know, for anybody who's been around horses, we can look at an eye and understand what they're telling us and believe them, like just believe them. There's a lot of work out there with the ethogram. Um, Sue Dyson's done a lot of really great work with that. And there's the facial grimace scales that have been published. So for people who are curious about those, I think it's fair to look up some of that extra information and um, understand what else is out there because those are helpful tools for people. Um, for many, it's innate, uh, but to be able to put some objective words, if you will, to those things that we feel innately is helpful. Um, and it can be really helpful for other, maybe younger veterinarians or, or trainers or riders who are struggling to believe that their horse is in pain. Again, going back to if they're not showing lameness, what are they telling me? Um, and there's there's great documentation out there right now that it's real. And um, so Dr. French and I can uh, profess it all day long that we think it's real. And But it's nice that we also have colleagues coming at it, maybe from little different angles with different information. And we're all coming to the same information. Get your hands on them. Watch them with their eyes. They're telling us those things. I love it. Just one thing to... One thing to add on the palpation front um, from having watched uh, dozens and dozens of interns and probably hundreds of veterinary students at this point <laughs> come through um, when it comes to palpation is start light, start light, start light. Um, I think, and I'll put myself in this camp as well, uh, younger practitioners, uh, we want to find out what's wrong with the horse, right? And we want to be able to say to the owner, oh, look, the horse is sore here, right? So we go in pretty hard sometimes right at the beginning in hopes of finding that sore spot. Uh, but Dr. Story is exactly right. As much input as we can get into our nervous system to complete that whole picture is really crucial when it comes to palpation. And you're going to miss a ton if you just go in and start mashing on the horse to find the sore spot, um, because it is so much more complicated than that. It's the texture. It's, it's all of those things. Um, but start much lighter than you think you need to. And, and hopefully I've gotten better as that as I've gotten, been out for a few years and will continue to get better. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as we're talking more about the standing exam, how about the ridden exam, Dr. French? So why is it important to watch these horses under saddle and at work? Because, I mean, you deal with a lot of high level sport horses, English, Western, you know, kind of really doesn't discriminate in terms of discipline. Um, but what are they telling you when they're under saddle that they may not be telling you when they're standing? 
I think that a, a, a ridden exam, uh, particularly for the neck and spine in general, uh, can be crucial um, and can give you a lot of information. Now, maybe that written exam is for you that day, um, you know, at the clinic or at, at the barn. Might be looking at videos of the horse. That can be really helpful too. Um, we probably could do a whole podcast on the written exam. Um, so just a, just a couple things to think about. Um, and the first one is liability. Um, you know, you, you hate to talk about that, but, um, you know, anytime we ask someone to get on a horse, we are then liable for what happens while they are on that horse. And so particularly with an amateur, um, you know, that might be riding that horse, it's something that I think we need to think about. Um, even a professional that gets on that horse, again, something to think about. And so, you know, if it's this sort of chief complaint that, you know, oh, they're, you know, they're, their performance isn't terrible, but it's just not quite right, or this particular maneuver is difficult. I think a ridden lameness exam can be really helpful for that. Um, if it's the kind of chief complaint where they're saying, anytime I ask the horse to go forward, he wants to rear straight up and the horse is flipped over backwards, maybe don't do a ridden exam on that horse. Um, so we, we, we just need to be really cognizant of that. I mean, I'm not saying don't do it because like I said, I think you can get a lot of information information from it, but just keep that in mind. Um, and so, um, you know, I, we're looking at all kinds of things under saddle, right? So are they doing their job? Are they happy? Are they lame? Is there a lameness that shows up only under saddle, but not in hand? How do they hold their body uh, when they have contact on the bit, when they don't have contact on the bit? How are they holding their neck, their jaw? Are they tense? Um, are they swishing their tail? Are they not wanting to go forward? Um, you know, what particular maneuvers are difficult? Is there a gait in particular that's difficult? So it's a lot of things. Um, and it can be a little intimidating, particularly if it's a discipline that you don't know very well um, or know the lingo per se. And so that would be another tip that I would say to, you know, younger practitioners or any practitioner that may not be familiar with the discipline is people want to talk about what their horses do. And so it's okay to ask questions. Um, you know, is that normal? What, what does that feel like? Things like that. So uh, like I said, I could, I could probably talk about a written exam for a while. <laughs> no, I think those are excellent points. Dr. Story, do you have anything to add to that? The only thing would be that I, I really respect Dr. French's thoughts on the um, liability aspect. Like that is really critical. Um, and so when you're in that situation and it, and it feels like it's just not safe or just really not the right choice, we can reenact a lot of that with other modalities. I mean, it's not going to be the same, but if you put them in some soft side reins or draw reins, and a weighted surcingle, that will add some of the same uh, situations that might elucidate some of the problems that you're seeing in the horses. So um, I think that we just, again, have to be sort of creative on how we can ask them in a safe way for the humans and for the horses. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to elevate to the level of stopping, rearing, flipping over backwards, right? I mean, if they uh, swish their tails, just like every, everything that Dr. French said, they're swishing their tails, they're chomping the bit, their ears are kind of flat or back, you know, you can see it in their eyes. If they start doing that and starting to do a little bit of the hopping gait and coming up behind the bit, um, it's not a far stretch to think the next step is going to be going over backwards or, or at least starting to rear. And so we don't have to go all that way. We can say like, I think that this is uh, reenacting what you're describing and we can move on from there with, you know, the next step diagnostic imaging or whatever we choose to do next, but <clears throat> finding other creative ways to show us some of the similar symptoms, I think is really helpful in a safer environment. You bet, Just moral of the story, safety first folks. <clears throat> Just just one more thought on that, too. I, I think that one of the most challenging um, written exams for me is with that amateur rider um, to 
sort out what might be how the horse is being ridden versus what is, you know, true discomfort or true, you know, inability of that horse to do the job. And so that's where I think a professional can be helpful. Even some professionals are hard, right? And, you know, so like a dressage horse, I'm not a dressage rider, but I might have an opinion of, well, I wonder if it's how that horse is being ridden. And so those are difficult conversations to have. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that we need to have a conversation about and maybe another person rides it or something like that. But the the amateur rider is is a difficult exam to sort through sometimes for me, at least. I can see that. I think that's fair. I would say the opposite can also happen, right? Well, <clears throat> where you have a really, really good professional rider and they can get the horse to do its job reasonably well. Like it from the outside, it maybe it doesn't show that front limb lameness because it's so far back on its haunches. It, it's not showing that. There's So there's this sweet spot in the middle of allowing the horse to show us what it needs to show us without exacerbating what it's trying to show us. And that can be really challenging uh, because some of those really, really strong professional writers will, will be able to hide a lot. And sometimes even not intentionally, right? They will say like, the horse is fine. I don't understand what you're talking about. The horse is fine. I've, I've been in that situation. And that goes back to my physical exam and the mobility exam, watching them in the stall, where I can say like, I understand you can get it to do what it's meant to do, but there's still actually a problem. And that's an equally difficult conversation to have. Um, and we just have to keep at it for the horse's sake. We're, we're all in it for the best interest of the horse. Absolutely. Talent and skill can get in the way folks. Um, <laughs> that's typically not a problem of mine. So um, so let's, uh, let's move on to, you know, now we have talked about the visual exam, talked about the physical exam. So Dr. Story, I'll point this one at you. Um, you've performed both of, both of those things, and now it's time to move on to diagnostic imaging if the case calls for it and the technology that you have in your tool chest. Um, so what are your options and when are you choosing to reach for certain tools x-rays, a standard radiographic myelogram, a CT myelogram, a bone scan, an ultrasound, an MRI, you know, what, what have you, you know, you've got a lot of tools at your disposal. So walk us through these tools and why you would be choosing one or a combination of a few over other options in specific scenarios. I would, I would say essentially across the board, the, the easy go-to answer is we're going to get radiographs. Um, and for some people that they actually question that statement because radiographs by themselves are not actually overly helpful many times, but we still have to start there because we can rule out some of the overt problems. So while I fully recognize there are lots of limitations with radiographs, it's still where we need to start. Um, and within that, I think it's critically important that we do a very diagnostic series. Um, it makes me a little nutso when I get radiographs of a neck and the quality is terrible, the, the films aren't lateral, uh, they don't include the occiput and C1. Uh, so we have to be thoughtful. We need the full series. Um, and I have said this in many various lectures, there is a big difference between saying my horse has normal radiographs versus they didn't see any abnormalities on the radiographs. And I think that's a really important statement because if the radiographs are non-diagnostic or it's an incomplete series, meaning maybe they didn't get down to C6, 7 or 7, 1, and the owner hears they didn't hear, see anything abnormal, they interpret it as they are normal. But if we didn't even evaluate the area, well, then we can't make the statement that they're normal. Uh, so radiographs, yes, that's the easy answer. We start there. They have limitations. It's a very complicated structure. And um, we're trying to see a very complex 3D structure through 2D imaging, and that's hard. But it's still where we start. 
but if you're going to start there, make them make them correct. Um, and I actually think it's almost worse to take bad radiographs or incomplete radiographs than not taking them at all. So that would that would be some of my thoughts and recommendations maybe for those practitioners who are questioning, gosh, should I take them or not? If you can't take them well, I actually would say no. Refer them in, figure out a different way. Um, but um, spending money and, and taking time to do something that's not diagnostic is actually not very helpful. Dr. So, sorry, one, sorry to cut you off there. No, what about, good. what about views and radiographs, like the oblique views and how important is that in terms yeah. of totality of, of that diagnostic imaging? So, so that would be the next part of that statement is when do you add in obliques, which, um, I've seen, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. Some people like won't take obliques. They're hard. They don't want to do them. And then I've actually seen or heard other people say like, oh, I get obliques literally from C1 to C7. That is a lot of radiation for yourself as a veterinarian or your technicians. And I don't actually think that's fair or generally necessary to, to, put people through that much radiation, especially if you're doing a lot of cervical exams. So just being really thoughtful about that. Obliques are really helpful. We do take a lot of obliques. I think that it's very indicated, um, but being a little bit thoughtful about where to take the obliques, I, I do think is also prudent because we, ju we just cannot take, you know, what it, would it be probably like, I don't know, 12 at least views of every neck 12 to 16 probably that's not that's not safe so yes obliques are really good understanding that technique is really helpful it's published all over the place the biggest um the the biggest thing that i see where they're not helpful is if they're not obliqued enough so laterals have to be really lateral like not obliqued very lateral and obliques have to be really obliqued um so making sure that you're understanding exactly what you're looking for is helpful. Um, having markers on, the obliques can be complicated to look at and know where you're at. And so appropriate markers is helpful. It takes time. It takes time and talent to get there to the place where you can just consistently get those good radiographs. Um, but that's true with everything that we do, you know? Hawks are hard sometimes too until you know how to do them. <laughs> so just staying at it and... Um, and making them correct and getting obliques when indicated. And if you're taking obliques, obviously get both from the right, from the left um, to try to make a complete series, but still recognizing that is not going to be all of the information we're looking for. And that's where the ultrasound comes in, which um, I know Dr. French does a ton of ultrasounding and it, it can really add a lot to the exam. Um, so same thing, a full ultrasound is really important. We're not just going to ultrasound C6, 7 and, and call it good. We're going to start at their pole and work our way down both sides of the neck and have a really full understanding. And I would say probably for both of us, uh, we'll jump in, but almost always, if I'm worried about a neck, we're going to get both. We're going to get radiographs and we're going to get ultrasound. I mean, they complement each other very, very well. And um, there's there's reasons and indications for both modalities. And so we're pretty much gonna, going to get both in any horse that we're quite worried about. Do you have anything totally, to add to that? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. Um, totally agree with that about both x-rays and ultrasounds and what I tell clients is like look this is expensive I know it's expensive to do both and because this area is so complicated and we need as much information as we can get it's really crucial to do both um, it, it's striking to me sometimes how bad a uh, facet might look on an x-ray and then on that corresponding ultrasound looks pretty good and then on a different case looks pretty sketchy on an ultrasound and then you x-ray it's like oh it doesn't look so bad so the the two together and like Dr. Story said you you get complementary information right so with the ultrasound you can evaluate the capsule for thickening you can see if there's increased diffusion you can look at the muscles um you know on the x-rays obviously you're not seeing 
chord diameter, not really looking at discs, things like that. So a ton of information from both, I think, is really helpful. Just kind of circling back a little bit to the x-rays, but then it, it, it um, stretches over into the ultrasound as well. It, this is a tough area, right? And it, it's hard to get good images and it's hard to learn it. Again, it's not something that's taught um, really in depth in school, or at least wasn't for me, and that's okay. But I think that it's on us that if we are going to do these things to, to make ourselves good. Um, the, the cool thing is that there's tons of CE opportunity on the spine out there for how to get good images, both x-ray and ultrasound. Um, I think it can be really valuable to send images to a radiologist and, you know, not only get their opinion on what the pathology is, but if you have a relationship with that radiologist to say, okay, how can this image be better, right? What can we do? What can we do better? Um, I, I think can be really, really helpful. So, um, you know, practice, practice, practice on getting good with the imaging for sure. Um, but reach out to other people to try and get better. You know, the good news is, is that particularly with the x-rays, the technology has come a long ways. And so most of the time we can get pretty good diagnostic images of the neck in the field. Um, there's a couple generators that have a little bit more power that can be really helpful, but it is possible to get good quality diagnostic images in the field, which didn't used to be the case. So, sure. How about CT? I mean, CT technology has obviously skyrocketed in in recent decades, years. Um, when are you using CT, and for what purpose, Doctor Story? Uh, I, I do think that the CT is really going to change things for us. Um, my analogy is 10, 15, 20 years ago when the MRI, the standing MRI was just coming out, it completely changed how we understood the horse's foot and navicular disease. And I do think that the CT will be similar to that for the neck, um, we're still in a little bit of a growth phase, if you will, where the CT capabilities um, and accessibility is on the increase and it will continue to increase rapidly over the next several years. But we're in a funny spot right now where it's still pretty limited. Um, depending on where you are in the country, you may or may not have access to a CT. Um, all CTs are not created equal. So some have better diagnostic capability than others. And so again, we're in an exciting phase. You know, there's two ways to look at things. We can either be sad that there's not a CT everywhere, or we can just be excited that it's coming. And I choose to look at the being excited it's coming. And so um, as a practitioner, if you're out there, just know that maybe you'll have to refer your horse for a little bit of a distance, if that's what you think is indicated. Um, but the more we do it, the more we understand, just like Dr. French said, sending out our x-rays, you know, we're going to be sending out our CTs to these specialists, um, the radiologists, and they are going to gain so much information over the next probably five to 10 years. We're, we're going to have a whole different understanding of this whole cervical spine problem um, over the coming years. And that's very exciting. So just know, send it away. We'll get the CT. Some of it's still a little bit of an unknown, but we're, we're gaining information every single day right now. And so uh, if we take radiographs, we ultrasound, we maybe trial treat, um, and the horse isn't quite responding like we think it should, or something just doesn't feel right. And they very well may need a CT or a CT myelogram. Um, and so maybe that horse has to travel right now, but, but having it on our minds um, for the trainers, the riders, everybody, just knowing that we can take that next step is exciting. Uh, related to that, some people question MRIs versus CTs. So just so people understand, you, you can't MRI a horse's neck. Um, the technology just isn't there. And I don't know, Will, what you think. I suspect it probably never will be, um, at least not in our lifetimes. Uh, so we just have to accept it. You know, if we were a human or a dog, 
and we have problems, we're going to go get a, an MRI because the understanding of the soft tissues is so much better with an MRI, but we don't have it. So accept it, move on. We're going to get creative with what we can see from the CT. And um, I think that they are working every day to be able to kind of change what we can see on those CTs. So the biggest thing is being able to see that 3D image, the, the, the neck in a 3D structure, in a 3D picture, and that changes everything. So um, it's coming, still limited availability, but it's out there. And they're amazing. I mean, when you're able to see these, uh, this is it's pretty cool. speaking right now, but I mean, I remember being in the OR at Alma Pintado Equine and seeing the CTs. And I mean, it's, it's fascinating to watch them as they peel back the musculature and get all yeah. the way down to the bone. And I mean, it's, it's really neat. It's very exciting. And just to throw a little, you know, complication to the whole topic is um, in our in our last spine initiative meeting, we talked about getting CTs on pre-purchase exams. Uh, same thing, you know, do you get an MRI of a horse's foot for a pre-purchase exam? I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's out there. It's a discussion point and um, a worthy discussion point for all of us to ponder when is it right? When is it wrong? Um, so yeah, that's happening as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the the thought of being able to do CTs on next is really exciting. Um, and then it's going to be a little bit like the MRI with the foot. It's like, okay, now we have all this information. What does this mean? Um, and that's going to be the really hard part to kind of sort through, especially like on a pre-purchase, you know, you find an abnormality. It's like, okay, what does this mean? And what is the horse doing? And how well are they doing their job? And all of those things circling back, right? Um, really cool to be able to do. And uh, so it's just more challenges for us. We have to be smart about how we do it. So I love when you all interview yourselves because this was my next question was the pre-purchase exam. So thanks for that. Uh, thanks for teeing that up. Uh, so it's a tough area for veterinarians, right? The pre-purchase exam, I'm sure keeps you all up at night sometimes because it puts you in a tough place a lot of the time. Um, so talk to me about what you're looking for in terms of the cervical region in a pre-purchase exam and where is that sweet spot for not over-diagnosing in a pre-purchase, but also informing that prospective owner about any changes or potential abnormalities that you're seeing there. Um, you know, so it seems like we see horses getting a mark on their record for, I don't enlarged facets when really it may not be a problem in that horse. So talk to me about the pre-purchase exam, Dr. French. It, it is it is a tricky area for sure. Um, so a couple thoughts on a pre-purchase. Um, the exam um, is is crucial for me again, right? It does come down to the exam. It's really difficult for me to look at x-rays on a pre-purchase and not have my hands on a horse. I'm a control freak, right? I like to know what my fingers tell me. And so um, to just provide an opinion on some x-rays, again, maybe with a horse with some mildly enlarged facets can be really difficult. So that's where we lean on our colleagues, um, you know, hopefully for their exams as well. Um, matters a lot what the horse is doing. Um, are they currently performing at the job? Are they doing it well? Um, you know, and, and a conversation that I have with just about every buyer on a pre-purchase is this is not for me to pass or fail this horse, but this is about risk management, right? Um, and, you know, some buyers may have had a bad experience with a neck in the past. And so their risk tolerance on a neck might be lower than a horse, than a buyer who had fine experience, you know, managing neck OA in the past. And so that risk tolerance and understanding that for that particular buyer is the most crucial, whether that's the neck or anything else. Um, so, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I, I don't think it's appropriate to say, well, it's difficult to prognose the neck, so we just shouldn't take the x-rays. It's like, no, I don't think that, I mean, it would be nice, right? Like, oh, we didn't take the x-rays, didn't know it was there. 
you know, good to go. Uh, I think we can hold ourselves to a higher standard than that. Um, and I, I do think it's really helpful. Again, I, I work on mostly sport horses as well, um, upper level sport horses. I think neck radiographs are crucial on a pre-purchase. I don't um, automatically ultrasound every neck on a pre-purchase, but um, if there's a concern on an x-ray or a concern on a clinical exam, then I would not hesitate to put the ultrasound on a horse for a pre-purchase. And again, to say that, you know, well, we found some abnormalities, that doesn't mean the horse can't do the job. How does it fit into the overall management of it is, is really important and really crucial. Um, uh, Duncan Peters and Philippe Benoit did a pretty interesting study a couple of years ago where they just radiographed jumpers in thermal in California and said, is there OA in their neck or not? Or are there cervical abnormalities? And a lot of them have them, right? Um, so you want to be careful with that, but know that horses can do a job, um, but it's useful information to have for what does management look like for this horse. I think that's an excellent point. Um, so Dr. Story, to build on what Dr. French just said, are there instances where a horse may be showing something quote unquote abnormal, uh, but the horse is performing just fine. It appears to be comfortable. How are you handling those cases? And an example that kind of comes to mind would be the transposition of the end plate of C6. So veterinarians are seeing this, but should we be concerned? Yeah, the... <laughs> that would be another uh, full podcast just in itself. <laughs> and we could find some colleagues who think that that is the like kiss of death. And uh, we could find lots of colleagues who say it's absolutely inconsequential. And I don't actually know that there's a right or a wrong. In some cases, I think it could be the kiss of death. And in some cases, that horse is going to be just fine. So, um, it, it so much goes back to what Dr. French said. It's all about the exam and the horses can show us some subtleties on the exam that they can cover up in the show ring. A little adrenaline goes a long ways to covering some things up. Yeah. And the, the problem, particularly around the pre-purchase conversation is when that horse um, changes work style and workload tack the rider, the trainer techniques, all of those things can take a very functional horse that's right on that line and just topple them right over the edge. And it can be extremely difficult to get them back. And that's, that's a hard conversation because I can't, I don't have that crystal ball. I don't know which horse may or may not fall over that edge. So just like Will said, it's not a pass or a fail. It's a an opportunity to have a conversation with the owner to educate them. And yeah. this is what, you know, as a, as the veterinarian to the owner, these are the things you have to be educated about. I think this horse is potentially at an increased risk for issues. And these are the things that you're going to have to be thoughtful about. Um, and, and some owners it's fine. And some owners are like, Whoa, I don't want to go down that path. And that's fair enough. We're just trying to educate them. And the more that the more tools that we can use to educate them more appropriately, then then the better that decision will be. That's that's how I look at a pre-purchase exam. Again, no matter what the body part is, right? And so the the physical exam is critical, critical, critical. What the horse has been doing, what they're going to do. You know, some horses, um, as you know, Jesse, strength and conditioning is really important. Uh, in my mind, and we have to have core strength, and you can take a very functional body. I don't care what species you are. If you're strong and fit and protecting yourself through core strength, you can do a lot. But as soon as you lose that, then all of those areas that were predisposed to problems, whether it's a disc, whether it's a joint, whether it's a whatever, um, then, then you start to see those issues arise. And yeah, the pre-purchase is really hard to get through that and know which direction it's going to go. But what has the horse's show record been? Are they at the level that they need to be at? Are they having to increase level? You know, all of those things are just important topics to cover in the pre-purchase conversation. Yeah, it is so 
it, I was just gonna say it is so fascinating to watch those horses as they change programs or change rider, right? Those little changes that can be really dramatic, you know, like the change in fitness from one program to the next or how they approach things works great for some horses and not for others, right? And to that, to, to help prognose that and understand the programs they're going into, that is challenging. Yeah. Moral of the story, we're all individuals and so are our horses. That is for sure. So Dr. Story, I want to follow up on that for a minute because it's making me think, and we're going to cover in part two with, with yourself and Dr. Ortved more on the, you know, how do you treat these cases and how do you rehab these cases? But I, I'm a, a little bit familiar with, with how you're handling these. Um, you're not putting horses on a calendar per se and treating them, you know, at, at intervals, you're treating these, these horses as, as individuals on an as needed basis. So tell me about that a little bit. Cause I know you're a major advocate of, of treating the whole horse, um, and that specific horse for what it needs when it needs it. Yeah. The idea of treating by the calendar makes me a little bit nutso for sure. Uh, I, I do not like that approach at all. You're right, Jesse. So my preference really is to manage them before they even need treated. And that would, that would be where my chiropractic and acupuncture training come into play a lot. I would much rather keep really close tabs on these horses, um, see them regularly, maybe every month or two, and just check in, you know, how do they feel? How, how are they doing their job? Because I think if we keep them strong and comfortable and mobile, um, moving forward, maybe we don't have to treat them at all. Uh, so above all else, that would be my preference, actually. And as an advocate for all veterinarians and trainers to stay in touch with each other, you know, these, these are really important relationships that we all develop. And I personally think that goes into another topic for job satisfaction. When we feel like we're a part of the team and we are an integral part of of keeping the horses going on the front side, not just being there for disaster management, it's much more productive for everybody. And so, um, yeah, that's actually my preference. And Jesse, as you well know, nutrition plays a huge role in that. So keep them fit, keep them healthy, keep them strong from the inside out, you're right, whole horse. And then maybe we don't have to treat them at all. And yes, we'll get into some of the treatments when we have to bring those in. But my preference is to actually, in many instances, not be able to, or not have to do that all of the time. You know, maybe you treat them once and then you just manage them for the next year or even two years with what Dr. French and I like to do a lot of, and that's just mobility and strength and acupuncture, um, keeping the body doing what it's meant to do in a natural way. And I really feel like veterinary medicine has taken so much more of that approach, you know, in recent years, recent decade, um, prevention, right? So you, you actually don't enjoy being firemen as much as you do keeping these horses happy and performing and doing what they're meant to do, um, and thriving at it versus waiting until there's a problem. There's so much that can be done ahead of time. So I love that, that perspective, um, Dr. French, do you have anything to add to that? Well, just, I mean, that is such a great point. And, and really the consistency, I think that the, the management of these athletes consistency is key, right? And so Dr. Story and I are able to get our hands on these horses and watch them move consistently, um, frequently because of chiropractic and acupuncture, that works great for us. Um, but if you don't have those tools um, or don't do that kind of practice, still really important to schedule that regular exam. I mean, quarterly exams more frequently, um, I think can be really valuable again to, you know, figure out what's quote normal for that horse, take care of those things before, before they become an issue. Um, and then you have those conversations about the other things, right? How is the horse's fitness? You know, how's the nutrition working out? Things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it might seem, you know, a little bit much on the front end, but it really does pay huge dividend, dividends on the back end. And one thing I love that you just said is what is normal for that horse? 
you know, and they're, they're really paying attention to that in human medicine too. Now where we've got normal ranges on, on blood panels and we've got normal ranges for this and that, but what's normal for that patient, um, is really important. Absolutely. Um, and Dr. Story, I want to throw this back to you for a minute because the equine spine initiative, we've, we've referenced this a couple times, but I want to, I want to hear about it directly from you. Um, and this group has really put a laser focus on the cervical region and it's set out to best define, um, a consensus, you know, related to this area of the horse's anatomy, um, the protocols that can be established and put into place. And you've got a wildly talented and quickly growing from the, from the looks of it group of colleagues in this group that are, they're pretty diversified in terms of their specialties. So tell me about this group and what the mission is. Well, I think Dr. French and I have both alluded to the fact that the um, cervical region is really complicated, right? And it can be a little frustrating, a little overwhelming, and and we do it all the time. And it can still be a little frustrating and a little overwhelming in some cases. And so the spine initiative really developed out of um, a need to try to bring information out there to, to more veterinarians and more clients and owners um, from, from those of us who focus on this as our a huge part of our daily jobs, right? So we have pathologists, radiologists, sports medicine, uh, rehab people, um, surgeons, everybody who has a little extra passion for the cervical region who can come together, have some hard discussions some days about, to be fair, even the word spine, right? In our last meeting, there was a huge discussion about even that word, because for some people, it's too small for some, whatever. Uh, Anyway, so just bringing everybody together who has thoughts around this area so that we can develop some maybe protocols. And I don't want to give the idea that we're going to cookbook anything because you can't Uh, individualized medicine, whole horse medicine, that is critically important. But with that said, if there are some basic guidelines, I think that can be really helpful things from as simple as these are how we can make our radiographs better, right? So if we have some protocols listed, like this is what we need, this is the bare minimum, and this is how you might troubleshoot to make this better that alone would be really helpful. Or uh, if you have a horse presenting with these types of behaviors, this history, at least maybe the cervical region should be on your list of differentials. Um, so, So some pretty straightforward things that we can get out there for the public. And then uh, on the surgeon side, you know, when we got together last time, they were all brainstorming together and coming up with new things. One of the surgeons was going to zip back home to Australia and 3D print a new implant to try out. And so, and and everything in between, you know, and then unfortunately, some of these horses um, do get to the point where they are, they are not um, going to be able to have a happy, comfortable, functional life. And, and we come to the very difficult decision where actually we're going to have to euthanize this horse, right? Maybe it's a wobbler that's too ataxic to be safe. Maybe it's too far down the, the pain scale. Whatever the case may be, some of these horses do in fact have to get euthanized. And so from a pathology perspective, if we can all put all of our knowledge together up until that point, and then we're able to evaluate it um, at, in a in a postmortem perspective, that's actually how we're going to gain our best knowledge. Unfortunately, that is in fact where we're going to understand things to the very best level uh, from a cellular histologic evaluation. Then we can backtrack and help all of the other horses up to that point, right? We can make better treatments. We can make better surgeries. We can make better understandings of what our physical exams mean. Uh, So bringing all of those people with all of those talents together from the very beginning, when we first start looking at them with a physical exam to the very end, and then collating that information, that's, that's our goal. And then um, 
being able to put out videos and information and manuscripts, getting together a website so that it's a resource uh, because we all need resources. Um, you know, the, the internal medicine group has some really, really nice resources about, excuse me, about metabolic disease, PPID. So sort of with that in mind, how can we make this more accessible, more understood for everybody? That's our goal. That's what we hope to do. Absolutely. And I mean, having the the immense pleasure of being in the room at, at a few of your meetings has been incredible to watch because it is a lot of veterinarians with um, that extra passion for this area. Um, and the discussion is so thoughtful. You know, everybody really is out to make a big difference for the horse. Um, and so each, each step along the way is thoughtfully discussed for sure. Even the word spine. <laughs> I mean, it's very... It's a very unique situation. I've never been in um, a CE situation where you can have people having just really open discussions, not necessarily always agreeing. And it's not that we disagree. It's just that we don't know yet. Um, but being very comfortable to say, like, I, we don't know. But what do you think? And how do we get there so that we do know someday? It's been very unique. And um, I feel very, very fortunate to be a part of it and very fortunate that Platinum has been such a huge supporter. We would never have gotten together without you guys. So from all of us from all over the world, we thank you every time we have an opportunity for giving us the chance to be together and, and talk about this topic. Well, it's absolutely our pleasure. And we're all here for the horse at the end of the day, right? So that's, that's the goal. The, that's the important <laughs> thing to keep in mind and something that drives all of us and all of our respective parts of the of the industry for sure. So um, as you may have gathered, ladies and gentlemen, um, this is a topic that is complicated and it it's seemingly infinite. You know, there's so much that we know, there's so far that we've come. Um, but there's so far that we have yet to go on this and and so much we have yet to learn. Um, and it is groups like the Equine Spine Initiative, but it's also practitioners like the people I have joining me today that have their hands on horses and are gaining that field experience every day um, with better understanding these conditions and better treating them and knowing where we should be pointed from here. So um, from myself and from all of us at Platinum, I want to thank both Dr. French and Dr. Story uh, for joining us and sharing their knowledge on this subject because it's fascinating. So I, I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure um, that those joining us will as well. So thank you both for doing that. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks, it. Dr. French. Thanks, Dr. Story. It's good to get the gang back together, the Colorado gang back together. That's right. It's always good. That's right. Thanks for allowing the California girl to join. Um, and to all of those joining us, we appreciate you being here and learning, learning alongside me um, from the experts. And we certainly hope that you join us on the next one. So until then, I'm Jesse Bangoa, and thank you for being here. Goodbye, all. <laughs>